Hello, I'm Lisa Morton, the founder of Roland Dransfield PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. You're going to hear conversations with the Mancunians born, bred and adopted who put the heart into Manchester since 1996 when we went about rebuilding the city after the IRA bomb. And now we are here, launching this podcast in one of the most unprecedented events in our history. The spread of coronavirus has stopped us all in our tracks. We did wonder if we should release these episodes, but when we thought about it, we believe we should, because the love and the family and the community that come out of these conversations will hopefully provide some strength and conviction that we did build this city and we will do it again. We love Manchester, and we know that it's built on the people that work together, day in and day out. People like Diane Madal. Anything in life worth achieving is worth working hard for, and boy, did they work hard. With me today on We Built This City is Manchester-born and bred Diane Madal, MBE, Olympian and former Middle Distance Commonwealth Games champion. She's also co-founder and CEO of the Diane Madal Sports Foundation, a registered charity which works with young people from within the top 20% areas of deprivation across the Northwest. DMSF uses sport as a vehicle for change to build character and develop behaviours that are transferable throughout their whole lives. Hi Diane, thanks so much for coming along today to talk to me. Hi Lisa, thanks for the opportunity to be here and uh, share this time with you. I'm particularly excited about this because as a kid and a teenager I was a sprinter, absolutely wedded to the track, wasn't as successful as you unfortunately. I used to run for Salford Met and did 100, 200 hurdles, 800 metres out of my limits and I hated the, the training in the winter time which was long distance. But you trained with Sale Harriers didn't you? Because we used to come and see you across the, uh, the flyover. Yes, that's right. So you were a sprinter. You would have wiped me off the field, (laughs) undoubtedly. But um, the mileage for me was what really excited me. But Sale Harriers is a club that I've been involved with all my life, really. And I suspect you probably would have been a rival club. We would have had our eyes on you. We we would have wanted to beat (laughs) you in the leagues and the championships and things like that. Absolutely. Well, we used to run, obviously, the track was just on the motorway and the flyover. We used to get a bus over over to sail but it felt like the other side of the world to get over there it found like it was kind of leafy environment it was a, it was a beautiful track there as well I used to enjoy coming over it felt like that to me as well to be honest I lived about um a good half an hour drive away from Crossford Bridge in sail the the running track and before we moved over to Withinshaw Park um it was almost like going on holiday going to the track because <laughs> yes. there were trees there yes, exactly. <laughs> and there was grass there but it was also a great opportunity just to have fun and do something that uh, that we loved amazing and you've had such an illustrious sporting career and it's taken you around the world uh, winning the 800 meter title at the Commonwealth Games in Auckland six uh, AAA Nationals 800-metre titles and you represented GB in four Olympic Games. Can you tell me how sport changed your life? Sport didn't change my life. It is my life. Uh, It's who I am. It's what I stand for. It runs through my veins. It's in my DNA. So it's very difficult to separate the two. And I would never have believed that just being able to run reasonably quickly would have such an impact on who I am today, but also as a kid, as a child growing up. And the principles, the values, the opportunities that I I had as um, an athlete still live with me today. And um, the thing that inspires me more than anything is the ability and the opportunity that I have to just put on a pair of trainers, open the door of my house and just be in a different world. And sport has enabled me to do that. I agree with that. I think that that freedom of just opening the door and going is uh, is incredibly liberating, isn't it? And so what point when in a, your childhood did you realise that you could run and you wanted to run? How did that happen? It was a chance meeting with a volunteer that enabled my uh, sporting journey to happen. So I grew up in Longside, went to school in Mosside, went to Ducey High School, which is now Manchester Academy. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing experience. My teachers wouldn't tell you that. They'd say, she's a naughty kid. She's <laughs> a naughty kid, that one. She's, nothing's going to become of her. Um, 
But during a typical PE lesson, I didn't know this, but my PE teacher had invited a local coach to come and watch that lesson. At the end of that PE lesson, Alan Robertshaw, this volunteer, came over to me and he said something to me that I will never, ever forget. He said to me, you've got potential. Would you like to join a running club? I was 11 years old at the time, first year in high school, didn't have a clue who this guy was. This stranger was using big words like potential, but not wanting to be embarrassed or humiliated in front of my mates. I looked up at Alan and I said, yeah, I want to join this club. And for three days a week, for seven years, Alan picked me up from where we lived in Longsight, drove me to the leafy suburbs of Sale in Cheshire where the running club was and that's where that athletic journey started. A chance meeting with a volunteer enabled me to get to four Olympic Games. That's incredible. And did he, was he with you the whole time that you were training? How long did he stay as he kind of coach and mentor? So Alan was my coach and mentor for... Um, at least three or four years, Alan was brilliant at grassroots. So he was the person that could empower you, that allowed me to know that I was worth something and I had some value. Um, and he also recognised that in order for me to fulfil that potential, I would need a coach that could drive me forward, that would map out the timetable, the plan, the schedule. So that coach was Norman Poole and he coached me right up until um, I got to my first Olympic Games in 1988, won a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in 1990. And then after that, what I realised was if I wanted to be an Olympic medalist, I'd need to go one stage further and find a coach that could take me uh, to, to achieve that gold medal. And so has Alan tracked your career then and been very proud of you? Alan um, was an amazing individual. I say was. He passed away, um, unfortunately, some years ago. But his spirit, his drive, his actual belief in me has never left. And I live by that opportunity that he provided me on a daily basis. It's interesting. Um, we were talking earlier about the fact that you can find somebody in your life that might be um, far removed from you in terms of age difference, but you can still connect because you've still got the same values. So do you feel that that, that happened with you? And he, even though you were very young at the time, you shared the same kind of drive and, and, um, and grit, I suppose. I'd begun to understand the opportunity that Alan provided for me much later um, as I became an adult, really, because yeah. in my mind, when I met Alan, he was just a coach who was speaking words that I didn't really get, I didn't really understand. But actually what he was really doing was providing an opportunity. He, he never spoke about gold medals. He never mm -hmm. spoke about travelling the world or getting to an Olympic Games. Uh, what I heard was... Here's an opportunity. If you're in, when I knock that door uh, and I'll take you to the club, I'll pay your membership fees, I'll buy your kit and all that sort of stuff, I think you could make something of yourself. Uh, and so that empowerment, that belief, that added value that he was pouring into me, I think I didn't realise until much later. And he obviously trusted him massively. Trust is key. In order for change to happen, uh, you've got to have a relationship with somebody. Uh, but trust happens, I think, over a period of time when somebody is consistent through the highs, through the lows. They never stop seeing that belief in you. And uh, I trusted him 100% and he never let me down. That's incredible. And how do your family react to your success? Were they right behind you at the time? So I'm one of seven. I'm the youngest of seven. I've got four sisters and two brothers. And to be honest, it was a matter of survival in our house, especially when you're the youngest. You get all the bullying. You get the last bit of food that's left. Um, you're known as the grass because in, in your brothers and sisters' eyes, I was the grass because I was the favourite one. So when they were trying to sneak out the door and, and do things and break the curfew, I'd be like, 
Deborah's just left the house, Mum, thinking it was the right thing to do, <laughs> yeah. tell the truth. Um, so when I was going off, going training, there was an element of, well, at least she's not around. We can get up to, to no good now. But what Alan also did was he had discovered a number of other young people who had potential. Two of them included my sisters, Deborah and Barbara, and they stopped when they were 14 or 15. They dis discovered boyfriends and nightclubs and all that sort of stuff. But for some reason, I, I stuck at it. And um, because I stuck at it, they, they backed me. They supported me in the best way that they could. And so, obviously, they went off to boyfriends and stuff, which most young kids do. What was it that kept you focused? That is probably the most difficult question to answer. And I'm not sure I can even answer it. And I've tried to reflect on what was it? Why did I continue to train every day? And it got to that point where I was training not only every day, but twice a day. My specialist distance was 800 metres and I was running 70k a week every week for 18 years as it, as, as it sort of panned out in the end. But what kept me going, uh, particularly in those early years, and I think on reflection, just thinking about it now, it was I enjoyed myself. I was having fun. I certainly wasn't the best. I wasn't winning a lot. I, I won fewer races than I lost. So I lost more races than I won. I had hand-me-down trainers. I had second-hand track suits. I didn't have a club vest, couldn't afford it. But I was having fun. And without knowing it, I was, I'd found a sense of purpose in sport without knowing that actually if I kept at it, I could be pretty good at it. And potentially that's what it was. I was finding my fun on the running track, running in circles rather than in a nightclub. <laughs> I bet your parents are pleased about that. <laughs> and obviously you've had, you had to make some sacrifices in that time. So would you, did, were you aware of making those sacrifices? Were you fully aware of them or were you just in, enjoying running around the track so much that didn't matter? It wasn't always easy or straightforward trying to be the best athlete in the world. And some of the things that I remember struggling with was coming from a, a, a background where you have to work for every single thing that you achieved. And for me, the lifestyle of getting on the start line was always a bit more complicated because there was stuff going on at home, just trying to hold down a steady job for my parents. It was always difficult. But the thing that got me through it, I suppose, was just having a network. It wasn't a network then, but yeah. just having a safe, soft landing from mum, from dad, from my brothers and sisters that made me think, yeah, I can, I can do this. And it was really a matter of um, just being resilient, keeping going. And I think what I learned and saw and witnessed from my, my parents was Anything in life worth achieving is worth working hard for. And boy, did they work hard. That's incredible. It's amazing the amount of people that I speak to who have been so lucky to have that parental support and family support. Um, and I know that the work that you do um, and some of the work that we do, which you can come on to later, there's so many kids who just do not have that background. And that's, I think, your work and the work that we do is, is there to try and help those children along the way. So that's really interesting. We'll come back to that. This is the We Built This City podcast, celebrating the Mancunians that built and continue to build this amazing city. You said that you felt the mantra's been so kind to you over the years that you wanted to think about what you could do to give something back. And I think you've done that in spades. When I actually went through and looked at what you've achieved, it's incredible. This might take me some time. But just to recap, you become a trustee on the board that helps govern the Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity member of the Sport England Talent Inclusion Advisory Group, a governor at Cedar Mount Academy in Gorton. You're the former chair of Downtown Manchester and Business. Previous to that, I can't believe this as well, you were non-exec director with the, the Central Clinical Commissioning Group, former uh, PCT. You're an ambassador for Street Games, a charity for children in inner cities, 2007 to 11. 
And on top of that, you set up the Diamondale Sports Foundation in 2010 with your husband and top British athletics coach. So, I mean, I need to lie down after all of that. <laughs> and it certainly can make you feel adequate, inadequate reading it. Um, how do you feel that you've used your passion for sport to change lives over the years? There's an awful lot in there, that, and it is obviously related to sport. Well, when my husband and I, Vicente, set up the charity in 2010, it was for one reason and one reason only. It was to provide an opportunity for those young people growing up in social deprivation to fulfill their potential. What we understood was that talent, potential is everywhere, but opportunity is not. So giving back for us wasn't even a discussion it was we can see there is a need how can I and how can we use our experiences as a coach me as a now retired athlete to look at what were the challenges that Diane faced as a kid trying to make her way through this journey of winning gold medals and when we reflected on that, the same challenges that I was facing still existed and still exist today. So things like the costs of training. So not only have you got to be able to afford a membership fee uh, at a running club, but you've got to pay a subscription, an annual subscription. Uh, kit is expensive, spikes, yeah. trainers, tracksuit, running vest, running shorts and tights. Um, there was also that aspect of, uh, how do you get from where you live to where the facilities are, where the running track is? For me, I had to take two buses eventually when my mum allowed me to do that to get from Longsight to Sale Harriers. But more importantly and above all that, a lot of young people, because of the postcodes and where they live, don't have the confidence in the first place yeah. to put themselves forward. So what we wanted to do was to go into areas where we know potential is there, but allow that potential to thrive. And that's become your kind of why, I suppose, now, hasn't it? Yeah, very much so. M my why is really about... It's, it's, it's relatively frustrating, really, because... When I work with and, and my team work with um, schools and community groups and wherever young people are, I listen and, and understand firsthand what they are going through, what they're enduring. Just to be stood in front of me is a big challenge uh, just to get to that point. So when I'm looking at them, I'm seeing my 11-year-old self. Yeah. I'm seeing that young girl who um, didn't even know what was available to her. No aspiration, no ambition, and no goal. And I think what we want to do is to be able to say, who are you as a young person? It's great to meet you today, but where are you headed? What plans have you got for yourself? And how can I and my team help you get there? And do you think those children have ever been asked that question? before? Now that's an interesting one. Um, what they say to us is people don't listen. A big one is people don't understand what we're going through because I'm a parent myself and I am no different than anyone else saying clean your room, mm. get home on time, put your phone down, what you're watching, where you're going, who you're hanging out with. And the same with teachers, get your homework in, where's your tie? Where's your ruler? You're on detention or whatever. So as a young person, when you're always being dictated to and you're being prescribed what's going to happen next, we do forget to listen and therefore we don't really understand what's going on in that young person's life. Um, and that's really important and it's all we can do. So by asking the question, where are we headed and how can we help you get there is really an important one. And do they have an immediate answer or is that is that just kind of encourages them to start thinking about it? Um, a lot will say, I want to be the next Usain Bolt. I want to be the next Jess Ennis or, uh, you know, I don't know, Kelly Holmes. Some will say, I hope sport works out for me. Like Samuel, for example. Samuel was 11 years, years old when he got involved in our organisation. And I'll always remember what he said. He said... I hope sport works out for me, 
But what I really want to be is a revolutionary. And I'm looking back at Sam thinking, what do you mean? Please enlighten me. Give me some clarity. And he said, I want to be someone who changes the world. Wow. Uh, just a few months ago, Samuel stood up and spoke in front of an audience of 300 people and talked about how he had gone to the UN in, in New York, in America, and spoken about his ambition to make a difference. A young boy growing up in Manchester, went to Manchester Academy in Mosside, started within our foundation and is now, I would say, changing the world just by his words. How can the wider community support your foundation? Uh, well, we've just launched, actually, our um, ambassador programme. We work with over 750 children each week across North, South and Central Manchester. And what we realise is there's an opportunity here for us to create um, a platform for others to come and help us. So we have a big uh, need to get more ambassadors on board, sport ambassadors, so people who have walked the walk, they've had a, a, a great career or they've had opportunities within sport to fulfil their potential. So we're on the lookout for uh, sporting ambassadors, um, community ambassadors. We want a social media ambassador, somebody who can help us celebrate our successes and talk about uh, the great stuff that the young people are doing and business ambassadors as well to help uh, fund our work so that we can uh, provide a strong platform on which potential can thrive. And so for people listening to this podcast, um, how can they get hold of you, get in touch with you to, to offer their services and support? Have a look at our website, diamondallsportsfoundation.org. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram put us in the search engine and get in touch. We'd love to hear from, from anybody who is, is passionate about uh, making a difference to the lives of young people. That sounds fantastic. Well, I hope people will do that. Um, just coming back to, um, we've talked in the past about, so Roland Johnsville's worked with elite sports people before, and they've said that they've had a feeling of loss when they have to kind of hang the boots up as such. Is that something that you went through um, after you made the decision to retire? How did that feel for you? The transition for me um, was a difficult one because what I remember um, after the Sydney Olympics, which was my last competitive race at an international level, was after the novelty of not having to train every single day, twice a day, had worn off, there is a huge identity crisis, huge. So from the age of 11 to mid-30s, all I did was run. That's all I did. I woke up and I ran. I went to the gym. I went to um, uh, the running track. All I did was run. And, uh, you know, when I put my spikes away, I didn't know who I was. Mm. I didn't know how I was going to um, define myself other than a runner who had been to the Commonwealth Games, European Championships, World Championships. So what? I was on the very start of a ladder that my peers had already got a head start of 18 years. So in other words, I was 11 years old again. Yeah. I had to find out what are my skills? Um, who's going to take me seriously? Um, and... It was a difficult time uh, and I, I suppose what I did was just throw myself into any opportunity that was offered to me um, in the hope that ultimately I'd find a purpose and it took some time. Did you use the skills that you'd developed as a runner and an athlete in making that decision? There was an opportunity that came for me to speak at a conference and I spoke at that conference and just shared my story of how I was able to make something of the, the potential that I had. And the CEO, um, Jane Ashworth at Street Games said, I'd like you to become more involved in the organisation. And she gave me this amazing title that I couldn't turn down, 
chief ambassador. Um, so I signed on the dotted line. Yes. I quite like the sound of being chief ambassador. And during that experience, what I learned was they were doing ama an amazing job, but a lot of potential was still slipping through the net. It's great to play sport. It's great to be involved in sport. But actually, what about those young people who need an opportunity to be challenged, to be pushed, to be um, heard and listened to? And, and in a way, that's where the Diamond All Sports Foundation was born. And on day one, I'm recognising that this is a concept that my husband and I could get our heads around it felt right. And that's the same thing that guides me today because I, I can see it clearly. Um, that opportunity, that meeting with Alan where he spoke these words that I didn't really understand, but it was a touch point and a really important intervention in my life that now forms what we call the DMSF blue line that runs through our organisation. So the blue line is really very much about the values and why DMSF was born and why we still exist. And that is about providing an opportunity for young people to fulfil their potential. And we talk about opportunity, creating opportunities, acting with integrity and remaining focused at all times. And by um, making that the DNA, that keeps you and everybody completely focused on what they, you're there to do. It's amazing. We did a piece of work about 18 months ago within Roland Dransfield, which we re-looked at what we were as people, what we were as a business, and we created the Roland Dransfield way. Um, these are 15 principles by which we live and work. And one of those is champions do extra. And that makes me think of you. I know that it's been documented that you successfully challenged and were subsequently cleared of a doping offence made against you in 1994. And we've, we, you and I have discussed this in the past, and at that point you must have felt devastated and heartbroken. But you said then that the kind of the grit and the support that you felt from Manchester as well helped you get through that. But what struck me at the time is that you could have run away into a corner and hidden, but you fought till you were cleared of that accusation, mm -hmm. weren't you? And so I'm full of admiration for that. I mean, can you talk to us a bit about how... You dealt with that at the time, where you Thank dug you, deep. Lisa. I did run away, actually. I did. I did run away inside. I had given up. So in 1994, I was falsely accused of taking performance-enhancing drugs. I was at the peak of my performance. I was 27 years old. And by that time, I had won Commonwealth gold... I was the Commonwealth Games record holder. And so going into the Commonwealth Games four years later, I was the favourite to defend my title. Right. And I remember arriving at the Games in the best shape of my life. I now had a new coach who was going to elevate where I had been. And the morning of the competition started like any other competition. It was a great morning, a great morning for racing and uh, to, to win back my, start the, the process of winning back my gold medal. And it was on returning into the Commonwealth Games Village after doing a warm-up in preparation for the competition that a team official took me by surprise and she said, Diane, I need to have a word with you. And I said, I can't talk to you at the moment because I'm preparing for my race. I've got a couple of hours. Can we catch up on this later? But she insisted that she needed to talk to me and she needed to talk to me now and sort of guided me back into her room. And when I went into her room, she did something really bizarre, but actually it was so human that she did it. This team official, she took hold of my hands, she looked directly into my eyes and she said, Diane, a drug test you gave nine weeks ago has tested positive. And it wasn't until she said, I have to pull you out, that I realised it wasn't a mistake. She was talking to me. And to be fair, I don't remember what happened much after that. 
Sue, at one point, was standing over me, slapping my face, saying, breathe, Diane, breathe, you must breathe. And I looked up at her from the, the ground where I was found myself, thinking, what is she talking about, breathe? They were so concerned about the way I had received that information, the shock, that they called a doctor. I was sedated with Valium. I was put on an aeroplane uh, and sent with a nurse, because they were so, so concerned, back to London. And in many ways, what my husband and I had to do was to become scientists overnight, mm. to try and understand what happened to that sample that I gave in Portugal nine weeks earlier to them opening it in a laboratory and testing it. We brought in the best ex experts, both legal and both scientists, and what we did find was the sample that I gave was no longer the same sample that was tested in the laboratory. When the pH was tested, the bacteria in that sample had risen uh, to such a level that it was no longer a reliable sample. And what we were being told by the experts were, if you test this unreliable sample, it will give rise to unreliable results. But what we have to remember is, at the time, the climate then in doping in sport was very different to what it is now. They wanted to find me guilty. They needed to find me guilty in order to protect the system. And that sample was tested. It came up with a result of, of testosterone, which is what I was being accused of taking, 42 to 1. Now, that didn't mean anything to me, but... What we later went on to understand was if I had taken that level of testosterone, I certainly would have been, <laughs> I suppose, faster than any male athlete that was competing at the time in my distance. Okay. Um, but the evidence spoke in the end. And what the evidence said was that the metabolites, which would actually confirm that that testosterone went through my system, was non-existent. There was no evidence to say that that testosterone went through my system. And we were told to go away and prove it then. If you're saying that a bacterial, a sample full of bacteria will give rise to that, go and prove it. And that's exactly what we did. We took two random samples, one from a, a high-class uh, tennis player, an international tennis player, and a marathon runner. We degraded their samples to the same level that mine was, and they gave rise to a false positive. And that was something that has now gone on to change the way samples are taken, samples are tested, and samples are stored. It's all changed now, but it was at a huge cost to me, my husband, and my career pretty much ended um, on that day. My confidence was wiped out. And although I did come back and win medals again, it was over. Do you think that the um, athletic sex has changed? Do you think their attitude has changed now? Is it a different place? Because obviously the, the kids that you are supporting to potentially go in to an athletic career, do you think this, the future is brighter for them in terms of drug testing or support or...? I, I don't follow the drug testing system as closely as I did. But what I will say is history is important. Mm. And until the authorities put right what happened so long ago, whatever happens moving forward isn't built on solid ground. Right. They have never recognised um, the devastation the mistakes and everything that has gone on in in response to what happened to me. It's almost as though it's been brushed under the yeah. carpet. But how can that be when I was the first and only British female athlete to have tested positive on that level? Where's the learning mm -hmm. from that? Um, I've never sat down and had a, a conversation with the authorities about some of the solutions and some of the, the things that could change as a result of that so although i'm sure that the authorities are assured that they're doing everything well i'm not assured because mm. i know the mistakes that happened could potentially happen again mm. 
if they want to protect the system rather than one innocent athlete. So you've shown so much grit through that. I know that you said that you had support from Manchester. They were right behind you. And I know your husband was a massive support for you. Do you kind of associate any of that support with with what you feel about Mancunians and and your community? I'm smiling right now because (laughs) when I reflect on the torrid times and there was media camped outside our our home, we couldn't go home for two weeks. Um, The one person we did let in was the postman (sighs) because the postman would come with so many letters, notes, of support from all over the country, but particularly Manchester. Mancunians kept me going. So when I was hiding and I was devastated and I felt that I couldn't take it anymore, couldn't go on, um, I'd open a letter and I'd read it and they would say, we believe you. We believe in you. Keep fighting. And Manchester, for me, is is my backbone. Mm. So when I talk about resolve and resilience, I go to a place that um, has always propped me up. You know, Longside, Mossside, Hume, Old Trafford. They are my solid ground where I feel most comfortable But you can't talk about Manchester and solid ground without talking about the people. So what I'm really saying is, for me, Manchester and the people, that postman who would always sort of barge past the media and make me feel good, um, it's about the people and what we stand for. And uh, that's why it's often difficult to try and sum up what is Manchester about? It's about the people, full stop. I read um, an interview that you did with the PFA a couple of years ago, and honestly, this is exactly how I feel, so I I want to quote it. You said, I'm a Mancunian and we're made of tough stuff. We are honest, we are fair, we have that true northern grit and we don't give up in the face of adversity. And it makes me, it gets my heartstrings that, because that's that's Manchester, isn't it? I agree, yeah, we can all relate to that, and... I'm I'm a proud Mancunian. I describe myself as a proper Manc. Yeah. Born in Longside, lived in Moside, made in Manchester. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. We've talked about amazing Mancunians um, and standout people. Your City of Champions, which is the annual fundraising dinner for the foundation, did you just have a light bulb moment over that? What we wanted to do with the City of Champions um, is really reflect on what is great about Manchester. We are good at um, identifying talent. We are good at nurturing talent and we're good also as Mancunians on allowing that talent to become legends in their sport. So if you think about, for example, the two football clubs that we have here, uh, their academies and how they have nurtured individuals to become great. Uh, If you think about, um, you know, the cricket, the fact that we uh, have a world-class facility on our doorstep. Think about the 2002 Commonwealth Games, being brave not only to bid for that, having lost a number of Olympic uh, bids, but we've got the velodrome where, again, some of that uh, opportunity to be great sports people have happened because of Manchester's ambition. So what we wanted to do with City of Champions was question that. Great, we're good at doing all that, but what about the next generation of individuals who are seeking an opportunity to um, fulfil their own potential? So the City of Champions uh, Gala Dinner was born out of celebrating what Manchester does great, but also giving back by saying this fundraiser is going to allow the city to continue their legacy of identifying, nurturing and enabling young people to be the best that they can be in their chosen area. And we've grown enormously moving from sport to business, 
entrepreneurs, art and creative now. Um, so if you think of over the years who have been inducted mm. into the City of Champions Hall of Fame, um, we've moved from sport into different areas now to celebrate what is great about Manchester. So with the City of Champions, originally that was all about sports people and athletes, and you've now extended it then to more creative or the business world. Why did you want to reach out into other sectors outside of sport? So our vision is very much aligned to that of Manchester City Councils. We both have a desire to celebrate some of the many inspirational figures uh, that have emerged through the city. And what we recognised was we are a city of champions, whether that is coming through sport, whether it's coming through education, whether it's coming through entrepreneurship. If you think about the city and the talent, the potential that uh, allows this city to thrive, it was almost an obvious thing that that was going to happen, but it, it, it did take time. And if you think about over the years who we have in, inducted, our inaugural inductee was Sir Chris Hoy. Yeah. Now, you might say, he's not even from Manchester, he's not a mank. Adopted. But he's an adopted <laughs> mank yeah. because his nine Olympic gold medals were born out of yeah. a velodrome in East Manchester. And what we wanted to do there was recognise absolutely the fact that we can and uh, often do adopt and welcome individuals into our city because in turn he will have a forever relationship with Manchester. Um, we then very quickly recognise that that opportunity for those Olympians wouldn't have happened had we not had a bold and ambitious um, city council. And what the city council and myself wanted to do was to recognise that bravery. So we inducted Sir Howard Bernstein and Sir Richard Lees for their ambition for the city, bringing the 2002 Commonwealth Games to Manchester, but also reshaping the landscape of East Manchester. And that legacy still lives on. And um, in 2018, we inducted uh, Bugsy Malone, yeah. um, uh, where we wanted to recognise his contribution to music. And the reason why the committee wanted to induct him was uh, his words, be inspired, uh, resonated with us. And he's allowed us to use that brand the Be Inspired Award is now uh, cemented within the City of Champions on the back of Bugsy Malone and his legacy, who's is, is, is something great for us to continue. That's amazing. I mean, we talked about um, the Commonwealth Games and that was something that Roland Dransfield was in, involved in, in terms of helping to support and market all the building works around the stadium and to see that whole area of East Manchester be regenerated through sport was a very special thing to be um, involved with. And as you say, Sir Howard Bernstein and Sir Richard Lees were a massive part of that. In actual fact, in the last recession, um, I was on a train going down to London. I'd not seen um, Sir Howard for a while. And he just was coming off the train and he just saw me and he said, how are you getting on, love? And I said, oh, well, I'm still here. And he yeah. went, keep going, girl. And and to me, that was that was Manchester, even though we would like just arrived in London. But to me, that was... You know, he remembered me from helping out. I mean, well, obviously, we set the business up one month after the IRA bomb. Yeah. So from that point, we were involved in helping to, to build the city. And you kind of drive into the city now, don't you? You look at it and you think where we've come. And certainly with the direction of, of Sir, um, Sir Howard and Sir Richard, they've been amazing leaders, haven't they, in that period of time? I agree with that. They've transformed the city. And that story that you tell there is... a about the people and I remember when my husband and I were setting up the foundation the first person I went to was Sir Howard and I went all brazen and thinking it's an idea but I've no idea if it's going to fly or not yeah. and I said I have a vision to be able to support the next generation of young people uh, so that they can be the best they can be and he looked back at me across the desk and he said 
let's make this happen. So he backed me then in the same way that yeah. he, he backed you. Yeah. Um, and that is Manchester through yeah. and through. It's about the people and the ambition and the belief that we have. Um, and, and now, um, when I went to him, I think we were working with 30 young people in one school. And we now work with over 700 each week um, just from that conversation with him across the table. Which Mancunians really inspire you? The person who's at the forefront of my mind is Nancy Rothwell, Dame Nancy Rothwell. Yeah. I'm inspired by her because of the fact that she is leading one of the most successful institutions that this city has on its doorstep, but also it's that influence that she has around graphene and the innovation that through her leadership has allowed the university to grow and for young people to leave her establishment with new dreams that can actually be fulfilled. I think the very fact that, you know, she has been in that position for a long period of time also speaks volumes to her ability to uh, lead an organisation successfully, continue to inspire her team. Um, and she's at the forefront of my mind at the moment as somebody who uh, is absolutely inspiring. That's wonderful. We've got to ask you about I'm a Celeb. <gasps> <laughs> Do you? If we can go back. <laughs> the thing that I was interested in is that I you use the words um, ambition and resilience a lot, and I love that, and I can see that massively in you. <laughs> I just wondered how a mank would deal with being in a jungle. Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. Um, but this is this is a, a mank that hates spiders. And you're going to say, well, why would you go on that uh, programme if you hate spiders? So I was on that programme in 2004, I like to call it or remember it as the best one ever. Not because I was on it, of course not, but because, well, it was the one where Peter and Jordan fell in love yeah. and they went on to get married. I know it didn't quite work out, but at that time it was an amazing experience for all of us. Johnny Rotten walked after getting a, uh, attacked by ostriches. Jenny Bond gave up all the royal secrets. Alex Best was on it. Razor Roddick was there. And Kerry Katona went on to win it. We were just a crazy bunch of individuals. I tried to get everybody doing circuits and lunges and sit-ups and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it was a great experience and I think I broke a record. It wasn't an amazing record at all. But my Bush Tucker trial was with Peter Andre and we had to catch the stars which were landing from above our heads. He was in a rowing boat and we were going round in circles. He, his job was just to keep the flipping boat still, OK? My job was to catch the stars. How many stars did we catch? Zero. <laughs> so um, we went hungry that night. Um, but boy, what an experience. I think it, it was crazy. The cockroaches, the maggots, they're all real. There's no sockets. There's no hair straighteners, no plugs. It's, it's real. It's a proper jungle. But um, an experience you'll never forget. I can't believe, I think we were speaking to Harry, Harry Redknapp um, in the summer and he was saying that when he finally agreed to go on that after about six phone calls, he honestly believed that there were catering vans and showers behind, <laughs> <laughs> behind no. the trees and he said he really didn't understand that till he actually got there. So I was petrified. Yeah. So I think me and Jenny Bond held hands while we navigated this very narrow and very dark pathway to get to the toilet for the first four or five days because we were just scared we were really really scared and then in the end we sort of had to say we can do this come on let's go to the loo on our own but it's proper it's it's proper stuff and what about Manchester did you miss most when you were there I suppose the fact that Manchester's home isn't it and your, your home comforts didn't miss the weather no. so, you know it was <laughs> actually it did rain a lot in the jungle it was relatively tropical there but I probably missed my family and I did cry a couple of times when I, I, I you know, you, you get really broken down in there deliberately and they, they send all these um, sort of prompts from home to remind you. And I, I did shed a tear a couple of times, but for the most part, it, it was really good fun. 
Diane, it's clear that you created really strong relationships over your career, and relationships is something that's really important to us at Roland Dransfield. So we created the Roland Dransfield Way. There's 15 principles of how we want to live and work and, and what we stand by. Um, and I'm just interested to know which of those 15 principles kind of stand out most for you. Never leave the game early. So we have achieved so much more than we initially ever imagined when we set up the charity. So we've moved from 30 young people in year one to now working with over 700 young people across Greater Manchester each week who are accessing our community sessions. So this is not the time to leave early. It's about hanging in there and whenever times get tough, you keep on going. The other one that I liked was leaders create leaders. So we exist to champion young people from disadvantaged areas and to help empower them in all areas of life. And our City of Champions Hall of Fame inductees are inspirational figures who we hope will encourage the next generation of young people to reach their full potential, not only in sport, but in life. So by working with leaders who inspire us, we want them to go on to inspire the next generation. That's amazing. I feel completely re-inspired. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Okay, a few quick questions, Diane. What gets you out of bed every morning? Knowing that I'd be able to go for a run. Amazing. Um, sum up Manchester for me. Oh, sum up Manchester. It's an amazing place to live because of the people that are here. What about Manchester do you think about most when you're not here? Fish and chips. <laughs> well, my next question was fish and chips or pine chips, so you've answered that one. <laughs> Favourite Manchester expression? A up. <laughs> or flipping egg. I say that a lot, flipping egg. <laughs> Brilliant. So when was the last time you actually went for a run? Ooh, I ran this morning. And how far do you normally run every day? About 5k. I run three times a week and about 5k. And do you have a favourite route? Anywhere where my trainers take me. Really? Yeah, yeah. And if you could choose one route in Manchester to run to inspire you, where would that be? It'd probably be off-road, so along one of the canals or somewhere like that, somewhere where I can just get into my own head um, on, on off-road. And what advice would you have for someone who said, I just can't run? I'd say you're wrong. Come on, come with me, let's go. <laughs> there you go. Diane, thank you so much for squeezing us into your incredibly tight schedule. It's just been absolutely inspirational. Um, without doubt, champions do extra, and I think you absolutely sum up that for us. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's been so much fun. Thank you. That was so good to interview Diane. She's been on my list for a long time and was very inspired by her as a young runner when we ran against Sale at Salford. So I've also been inspired by her in recent years as a business person and a leader and taking that discipline of sport into whatever she does, really. Um, sport's in her DNA, she says. So that was uh, great. Wonderful. My checklist there. In the next episode, we have actor and Mancunian John Thompson and he's going to be telling us why he has an obsession with escape rooms. But they, honestly, I can't recommend them enough. It's just for just something different. But I used to take, when I was dating, I used to take uh, dates on there, and if they, if they were useless, I wouldn't see them again. <laughs> <laughs> it was a test. God. This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years, 0161 236 2.